Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. It was a wonderful reminder of, you know what, these things that we experience in life, like what a blessing to like live, to be on the other side of it, right? And, and that was, I think, the, the, the greatest gift of, of returning home. This is Thresholds, a series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they made afterward. I'm Jordan Kistner. This is Thresholds. Something to note about this season of Thresholds is that all of the audio recordings you're going to hear were made in people's homes, often on their cell phones, in order to keep us all socially distant. And... What that means is that occasionally you'll hear a slightly diminished sound quality or random life things happening in the background, a car backfiring, a phone ringing, a dog walking into the room, my dog walking into the room. Um, And we hope that you will be generous and bear with us on that. Okay, so the funny thing about the interview that we're playing today is that it was the second interview that we recorded with Wyatt Tumor, the memoirist and novelist and entrepreneur. I talked to her originally back in July. I think she was the first of the interviews that I recorded for this second season. And it what that meant was that we were all still sort of getting used to remote recording. And one of the sides of our conversation of the audio never saved, <laughs> which meant that we had only me and none of her, which wasn't going to work. And so we had the opportunity, because she was gracious enough to agree, to do the conversation over again uh, this past month, which was 
such an incredible gift, not just of her time, but also because I feel like the conversation we had the second time really benefited from the experience of the first conversation. Um, We already knew each other a little bit and could talk with more depth and more joy about the experiences she recounts in her most recent book, uh, which is her memoir, The Dragons, the Giant, the Women, um, which is a memoir of her experience as a very young child escaping the Liberian Civil War with her father and her sister and her grandmother as they leave their home and try to flee for safety and eventually try to make their way out of Liberia to reunite with her mother, who was at the time studying in New York. It is an unbelievable work of storytelling, this book. It just took my breath away every page. It was um, one of my favorite reading experiences of the year. And so I was really excited to get to speak to her, particularly for this podcast, because the life that Waiatu describes in this memoir is one that seems full of thresholds, full of crossings, full of um, entrances into new worlds and exits from old worlds, and then also of homecomings. She describes herself as someone who makes her home in between worlds, and the books that she writes are evidence of the richness of that kind of life uh, and some of the challenges, too. So I'm excited to introduce to you version two of Way Two More on Thresholds. My memoir is, it's really an exploration of identity, um, what I consider a cross-cultural identity, having spent my formative and developmental years in a different country um, than, than the one that I was born in. And I'd been in the U.S. for since I was five years old. I'm 35 now. Um, So it is, my home is America. I have very American sensibilities. Um, But I always recognized that by nature of my name, obviously my skin color, I was seen as, as foreign, as being African. But when I go to Liberia, I'm seen as foreign. And so it's this Um, this life in the middle, balancing a life in the middle that I think I was always in some way exploring. Um, I've I've been telling some iteration of this story for for quite some time since I was younger, because what happens is if you are, if you have um, a unique name, uh, unique uh, phenotypical characteristics, then people tend to ask, you know, well, where are you from? And I would initially say, Texas specifically when I moved to New York and you know that they would say, where are you from, from, right? Because New York interrogates identity in that way. Um, and then, and so because of that, you end up, I've told this story so many times that uh, it was something that was in the works, I think my entire life. And I found that when I was doing publicity for my novel, I was getting asked about my personal history quite a bit, right? Um, And how my personal history affected my novel. And I think that is, that's like a, perhaps somewhat of a craft question that many writers get asked. But I think for some writers, you get asked that a bit, a bit more. 
um, uh, if, if you assume a certain identity, the expectation is that you're pulling from personal experiences as opposed to some innate creativity. So I, I wanted to just put it out there for once and all. And it wasn't until I returned to Liberia after being away for 25 years at that point that I realized that it had culminated and it was time to put it on paper. And the story is my, when my mother, when the war started in Liberia, my mother was in school in New York. Uh, we were still in uh, the country with my, we, my sisters and I were still in the country with my dad. And we lost touch with my mom. We had to leave Monrovia. We actually went into hiding into my maternal grandmother's village. Um, and on the way there, my dad saw someone who used to work for him. And he gave a rebel some money to let the guy go. And the guy was able to escape to Ghana and get in touch with my mom and let her know exactly where we were. So the book really explores how it was that my mother was able to find us, um, the tools and the people who played a role in getting us out of Liberia when the border was closed, and then just assimilating to American culture as an immigrant, but more specifically as a Black immigrant, um, because I do think that Black immigrants have a different experience. There is a duality of, one, in the same way many immigrant groups do, you view America as the world's emerald city. It's the land of opportunity where anything could happen. And that's an incredible privilege to just go into a space, enter a space, loving it and holding it to such prestige in that way. But then as someone who is Black in this country and considering America's history with racism and race, um, then realizing usually quickly, but for some it's, it takes a longer time, that your existence here has different implications than what you imagined it would before you immigrated here. Um, and so the book is an exploration of that. It feels like one of the great moments of joy that we see in this book is when you eventually return to Liberia and see your grandmother again. And I was hoping you could describe why you went when you went and what what that was like. It was a boy. Isn't that, isn't that horrible? There's this horrible breakup that I started, had this existential crisis where I was just like, you know what, where, what am I doing here? What's going on with my life right now? And examining everything about um, my womanhood, about my artistry, um, what, what I wanted my life to be, how I was going to move in a purpose-driven direction. And yeah, heartbreak will do that. It makes you re-examine everything. And so I would say that was probably the catalyst because I went from exploring, going everywhere, being out in these Brooklyn streets to just being at home for six months. I had a, a COVID experience five or six years ago where I, I self-quarantined for maybe about four months or so. It was mostly in my apartment. And during that time, yeah, I did a lot of thinking. And um, But then from there, I was I, because I was thinking of re-examining and dissecting my, my womanhood and my femininity, um, began to think of these women who had played such important roles in my life, like my mother, 
um, like the rebel soldier who helped us, like my grandmother. And I knew that it was it was time to go back. It, I, I, it was there was no other place that I could go for healing and for answers, the sort of answers that I was looking for, than my first home. Um, and so, seeing my grandmother again, being able to sit with her, being able to hear her, her love story, even because I was I started to ask these women in my life questions like that. Um, during that period and during that period and my my grandmother I remember her looking the same um but then but then um she was like a it was a, a revised version of like her because my, my grandmother is very regal she has she's she's very long and I remember her because she was old. Right now she's 94. And so at the time of the war, she was in her, her 70s um, or early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. So she was older then and frail then, but always very regal. Um, and the way that I remembered her while I was in America um, was similar than to who I saw, but somehow she had grown taller, even though she had it. Because <laughs> she, you know, you shrink as you get older. But it's it, it might it might be a function of the stories that I had told myself in America about my grandmother. That that when I did see her, she sort of lived up to all of these images and these pictures that I'd drawn in my mind. Um, and I think the only time that I realized that that oh, she is much older. She is, she is very different is when, like, she needs help to walk now. And so having to hold her hands up. And I remember my parents sent me to do it. And I almost began to bawl because of the cyclical nature of life. But they, so, you know, go help her go to the restroom and, and carrying her almost. And then that's the first time I realized, oh, she has changed. Um, but I had this image that was set in my mind of who this woman was, what she represented, um, what her story was. And all of it was pretty, pretty consistent until then it was clear that she needed my help and something had shifted in the time that I'd been away. Because she's, as you write her this in your childhood, mm -hmm. when you're small and you all are running from violence, she is this older figure, but strong and mm -hmm. kind of towering in her mm -hmm. presence mm -hmm. and carries you, you know, spends so much of the time literally carrying you. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it's amazing to hear about that experience of going back and realizing that you, you needed to help her walk mm -hmm. after this time. It must've been amazing for her to see you. You must've been very changed, much more changed in her eyes uh, at least physically. She, yeah, I, I think so. She has um, a little bit of Alzheimer's, so we'll have um, conversations, and she'll and she'll say, "Where's where's where's that middle child? Where's that where's that younger sister?" You're like she's thinking that she's talking to my older sister. Like like where's that Tutuge? Yes, Tutu is what they call me. Where's Tutuge? I'm like I'm I'm right here. It's like oh Tutu, how are you Tutu? <laughs> Things like that, little little quirks like that are obviously humbling. Um, but she, I think it might be the same thing. Me still seeing her as the same, 
I think she still sees me as the five-year-old girl, you know, and age allows her to do that. It was the first time that I was called the N-word, which, thank God, was the only time that I was directly uh, called that. And we were kids, we were younger, we went to this corner store, which I also uh, mention in the memoir. And there was a storekeeper there who had verbally harassed my, uh, myself, my, a, a few friends of mine who were all young African-American girls. And up until then, if anything would happen that seems like it might have been racially motivated, and if I went home and would say, oh, you know, I think this thing happened, this weird thing happened, and my parents' explanation, because even though they were totally aware and smart, so they knew the human condition and and its detailed consequences as it pertains to the different ways people stratify my they 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 did have a a bit of um their there was a a sense of hopefulness perhaps in in America that um that that they perhaps didn't didn't want to let go of in that if I said this thing happened that was really weird, they'd say, oh, those people were just silly, they're having a bad day as opposed to you know, it's because you're black, which it was my friends in, in school who really pulled me into that awareness, right? And obviously, eventually, my parents came too, but they're, they were so deeply religious, are so deeply religious, and I was raised in a fundamentalist Christian Texan household. And so the people who, who we called brother so-so-and-so and sister so-so-and-so were white growing up. And so that was my parents' race was Christ. And so uh, in telling them, oh, this thing happened with this individual, it's like, oh, well, this, you know, people who aren't believers, they they treat people all different kinds of ways. And their explanations were always centered around um, like religious reasoning, as opposed to any sort of social condition. And so it was my friends who introduced me to the very, very reality of how racism functions and what racism represents um, and has represented and how it surfaced in the United States. And it was that childhood experience of not necessarily being called the word, because I would, I, I think as a kid, you know, early middle school kid, it's, it's as if someone calls you stupid or ugly or whatever the words were then that, that, that people shouted at each other it was seeing how deeply affected my friends were that gave me an acute understanding of the implications, the historical implications of that word, right? To where I understood that there was something deeper at play and there was something very serious that I needed to begin to pay attention to if, um, if I hadn't been until that moment. With the war, it was, my, my parents really did work overtime to protect us, to make sure that they were preserving our childhoods. And, and because, of course, I was younger, so therefore more naive and gullible, I swallowed everything that they said. 
But then when you're older, there's no way to really talk around racism because of its ubiquity, right? Um, when you are in a war, specifically uh, what was going on in Liberia at the time, there were places you could go where you could walk. I mean, there were places in Monrovia where people were still going to stores while the war was very real in the interior, in upcountry, right? These things are happening simultaneously. And so a lot of what, you know, even though we came face-to-face with um, the grim realities of it a number of times, it was somewhat happening in the periphery or in the distance where you hear those gunshots in the background. And so it can be something that's interacted with from a distance. But... Racism, you can't really do that, right? Because it's every, like you go to a grocery store and you're getting followed. And so, oh, why am I getting followed? Or you're in class. And even as a kid, I, my siblings and I were always in AP classes and teachers just being surprised. Like, oh, wow, you, you did really well. <laughs> you did really well on this test. It's like, oh, thank you. But you, you can tell as a kid, like, why is there a sense of shock here? Whereas this this educator doesn't have the same interaction with my peers, there's an expectation there that they're going to do well, whereas there's genuine surprise when I do well. Those things like that, that can't really be understood or talked around or hidden. It's in a continuous every day. It's a, a racism is a, it's a continuum. And so um, because of that, that isn't my there was no way that that my parents could 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 sugarcoat that or 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 hide that from us. So the trauma then is something that it's not like um um like an an, an instance um, that you then recall or revisit in order to heal from. I think what black people go through in this country, there's this there's a constant daily healing that has to take place because that trauma is constant, right? And if that's the case, you just can't even compare the two. You can't compare the two. And then it's generational because then if you're not practicing healing and self-love and joy and like a constant forgiveness of the country that you're in, then you're going to pass those same fears and that same um, justified rage onto your children and your grandchildren, right? Um, And so that's why I say it's a continuum and there's just no way you can compare a war that happens. You you deal with something for six months, not minimizing or undermining the experiences of anyone in Liberia and what Liberians or or any any, um, members of a a country that went through social conflicts, went uh, experienced, not minimizing that at all. It's it's so striking in the book the way you describe the, how your father in particular and your grandmother were able to mini- minimize or or cushion some of the horror of the wars you were experiencing it as a five year old by re narrating it to you by telling it as a story that was something that you as a five year old could digest and handle. Obviously there are, there are limits to what, what they could do. You know, they couldn't not make you be walking past people lying in the side of the road, but they could tell you that they were sleeping. Right. And it feels it, one way that I read 
your memoir is as a writer coming to terms with maybe two, what we would call for this podcast, threshold experiences of having to of, I don't know if you would maybe call it a loss of innocence experience of realizing that the story of what happened when, when you all were leaving Liberia was not, was not quite exactly the story that your father and your grandmother were able to narrate to you as it was happening. And then also a secondary loss of innocence about realizing that the, the story you had been told about what America was going to be for you was not, was, was going to be abraded or tainted or traumatized by racism. Um, and I, and I wonder how you think about the, the storytelling your parents did around those two moments. So when I talk to my dad specifically now about his methods, um, I mean, he fully commits to his lies. (laughs) He says, you know, (laughs) Of course, that's that's what you would do. Like, you know, you have young children, you're not going to, you know, you're going to always be finding a way to um, to cope um, and to dilute some of these experiences. And coincidentally, the stories around the war didn't end when the war ended. It was always, I mean, I think growing up, if we were at a family reunion or in a space where, um, my dad was gathered with his friends, which was rare because we weren't raised around other Liberians, other Africans, period. Um, then it was always Liberia seemed like this fairy tale place where, oh, remember, and then you know, we would we would we would go to the river and, and jump off of this, and then the river was always so deep, and that, that one time it carried us away, but it carried me two miles down and and the way that they they spoke about this place was with such reverence and joy that um, I couldn't help but to see Liberia, um, in spite of what we had been through, as a place that I wanted to and had to return to. And I think in many ways, storytelling um, has been used and continues to be used in my family um, as a tool for for um, reconciling some of some of the grim realities of our world, like using the the wideness um, and the and the flexibility of stories to not just make sense of what's happening, but make joy of what is happening, right? And my I guess in you know in comparison to what's what's happening here, Um, the way that stories inspired me to make sure that even as a Black immigrant, um, so first of all, my family, my paternal side, they can link their history. I can link my history to American slavery, um, which is not the case for many Africans. Um, But my father always, you know, he would use stories based on obviously truth of the diaspora of pan-Africanism to connect the dots and make sure that I was always looking at being Black as as an international body. I was part of something um, and I was part of a struggle that um, is similar in these different places I found myself in. Um, And his stories definitely contributed to that as well. So... 
um, I feel like when people ask me just about stories, the fantasies, and um, some of the magical elements of my of 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 how the war and how different things in in my life were explained to me, um, I credit that to how I then tell stories. Right, I'm always sort of looking for the vastness and and searching for the joy. Um, between the lines. Um, and that that is something that has been a great privilege to have had that introduction. And so um, so then when I when I approach not just the, the oral tradition but the written tradition, I feel like I'm searching for for those those golden threads in the same ways that they were presented to me. friend and made a comment about how you know as an immigrant you she said she 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 said she was a ref she was an immigrant and I'm I was a refugee and she said you know as an immigrant my life where I came from in in my country in Africa was dire there was you know, no hope there we had to leave and we were looking at America as a better place um, a new chance whereas you as a refugee it's something that you had a great life in Liberia and then you all came here because you had to. And so doesn't that make your experience any different? Like, don't you, don't you, didn't, didn't that make, doesn't that make your view of America different? Doesn't that make your view of home different? And it's interesting because I had never looked at it in that way because my parents had always in their um, recollections of the war and us talking about what we'd went through, it was always presented as this huge privilege, right? Like not that, oh, how sad we had to seek refuge in another place or we had to immigrate to another place. It was always, you know, look at this huge blessing that we have another chance. Like how amazing is that? How privileged are you that you get to be here and that you get to make something else of your life. What, a, what an incredible privilege. What are we going to do with it, right? And so the framing of our experience, I never viewed it as anything that I should be ashamed of. I never viewed my life as something that, any element of my life, any instance of my life as something that I had to hide. And in returning to Liberia, spending time with my parents again, spending time with my, my grandmother, having the conversations with people who had been through the war, I returned to America um, with that certainty, reacquainting that certainty of even something like a heartbreak. That's something that you should wear as a badge because how rare to fall as deeply in love as I was. And I know the way now. I know how to walk through this maze and and I was right because from that experience, I was able to open up in ways that I wasn't before. And now I'm in a beautiful, very happy and fulfilling marriage, right? And so it, it, it was a wonderful reminder of, you know what, these things that we experience in life, like what a blessing to like live, to be on the other side of it, right? And, and that was, I think, the, the, the greatest gift of, of returning home. You've 
said before in different interviews, something that you alluded to at the beginning of our conversation, which is that there's always been for you this kind of in-between feeling of Mm -hmm. people in the U.S. asking, okay, but really, where are you from? And then in Liberia, you're also seen as a a foreigner, Mm -hmm. as someone who's not from there. Mm -hmm. And I, the last question I wanted to ask you was about whether you have in the last, you know, however many years since going back to Liberia for the first time and writing this book, located a home that feels mm-hmm. like your home mm-hmm. or if in-betweenness feels like a good home for you. Yeah. Right now. In-betweenness is, is there, there's, there's something very, very peaceful there's something that's something that puts me at ease, knowing that I can um, travel without effort between worlds. Um, it forces me, I think, to find homes of people, right? Which could have its disadvantages because then when you lose people, it hits you that much harder. Um, but I, the people who have stayed in my life, I tend to be a loyalist. Um, to people who I've known for a long time because they're my association with um, groundedness and um, a sense of belonging to a place. Um, that association is made through people. Um, but that that in-between space, yeah, that is that 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 I look at that as as a privilege um, mm-hmm. of 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 having different places that I that um, I feel a sense of ownership of. And, and I know um, have owned and embraced me and our story. Historically, in all different kinds of storytelling cultures, animals that are two, like chimeras or animals that can traverse two different worlds are magical and powerful. That kind of in-betweenness is a kind of magic, um, which is an idea I've always loved and resonated for me when you were just talking because so much of your books are about bothness and about magic it is it is in, in addition it is it is a special place also because i mean on the other side it can be alienating right that that aloneness you 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 feel you feel that space um that that loneliness with imagination and musings and creativity so maybe the magic lives in there somewhere um, as a result of some of the isolation, but but sure, I can certainly see some of even my leaning toward fantasy and magic as being a result of existing in that space. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.